You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 4, Nemesis. Thanks for joining me. After tackling half the European continent, plus the Ottoman Empire in the last episode, we're narrowing our focus to talk about Great Britain, Napoleon's most implacable enemy, and the country that played the biggest role in his downfall. I've been looking forward to doing this episode. Britain was one of the most exciting, dynamic places in the world in the 18th century. They were at the beginning of a huge transformation during this period. It wasn't as sudden or dramatic as the change that occurred in France after 1789, but in many ways it was just as profound. From our modern vantage point, it can be hard to take an objective look at 18th century Britain. With the benefit of hindsight, we can see that by this era, many of the foundational elements of Britain's dominance of the 19th century were already falling into place. Britain had developed a stable, effective form of government that would soon evolve into the system we know today. British industry was already in the early stages of a revolution that we know would soon bring it to dominate the global economy. The Royal Navy was growing into a force that would remain unchallenged for over a century. Britain was on the cusp of a golden age of global power. But that's only obvious in hindsight. In the 18th century, the signs of Britain's rise were there for those who could read them. But nothing in history is inevitable. The conditions were right for Britain to grow into the paramount power of the 19th century. But without good decision-making, and maybe more importantly, luck, it might not have happened. Politically, 18th century Britain was kind of an exception among the European great powers. I'm sure by now some of you are sick of hearing me talk about centralizing absolutist reforms. Well, I've got some good news for you. The British system developed in a totally different direction. Obviously, there were no modern-style democracies in Europe at this time, but every country had at least one representative institution. Many were just assemblies of the nobility, but some included other parts of society too, like the clergy or non-noble landowners. In Britain, there was Parliament, the House of Lords representing the nobility, and the House of Commons representing everyone else. And yes, these are the very same institutions that function as the British legislature today fortunately in very different form. The Polish Sejm and the Dutch Staten General were probably the most powerful representative bodies in Europe, but the British Parliament was not far behind. In the mid-17th century, King Charles I tried to rein them in and rule by absolutist principles. Parliament resisted, and the country was dragged into a long, bloody civil war, which culminated in the trial and execution of Charles. With the king dead, Parliament set up a republican government called the Commonwealth. 
First, they tried ruling the country by themselves, then with a victorious general, Oliver Cromwell, as a kind of pseudo-monarch. But the new government was never able to really stabilize or entrench itself. Shortly after Cromwell died, Parliament invited the eldest son of Charles I to become king. After over a decade without a king, Britain was a monarchy again. But Charles II was determined not to suffer the same fate as his father. He promised to eschew absolutism and respect the traditional powers of Parliament. And he mostly kept his word. Political considerations aside, the new king was generally more interested in drinking and chasing women than governing, so the compromise suited him just fine. Unfortunately for the country, Charles II's successor, James II, had a much more difficult relationship with Parliament, in large part because he was a Catholic ruling over a mostly Protestant country. Many feared James would lead the country into absolutism and Catholicism, concepts that were very much entwined in the minds of many British people. Parliament launched a coup in 1688, putting James's daughter and her husband on the throne as co-rulers, Queen Mary II and William III. This event is known to history as the Glorious Revolution. Former King James II and his supporters would probably disagree. As a condition of taking the throne, William and Mary agreed to share power with Parliament, respect certain civil and political rights, and maintain Protestantism as the state religion. And they generally kept these promises. Amazingly, every subsequent British ruler has basically kept up their end of that same bargain. There would be plenty of push and pull between monarch and Parliament over the next two centuries of British history, but the basic framework of that compromise has remained. The British government did much to centralize, rationalize, and reform its administration over the course of the 18th century, but unlike the rest of Europe, this happened through collaboration between the monarchs and the parliament, rather than being imposed by the monarch over the objections of the rest of the elite. Of course, no one in 1688 knew they were setting up a system that would only change gradually over the next 200-plus years. Britain was still divided along religious lines, both between Catholic and Protestant, and between various Protestant denominations, who sometimes opposed each other just as bitterly as they opposed the Pope. It was divided along national lines. Irish, Scots, English, and Welsh identities were already developing during the 18th century, and they've always been stronger than any united British identity. Most people were happy with Britain's mixed system of limited monarchy, but there were also political divisions. There were radicals who were inspired by the Enlightenment or nostalgic for the Republican Commonwealth and wanted to open up the elitist system to the common man. On the other side of the political spectrum, King James II did not take this so-called glorious revolution lying down. He fought a brief but bitter military campaign against William and Mary and set up a royal court in France in exile after his defeat. An underground movement in Britain continued to support James and his descendants. This movement included a lot of Catholics and was largely concentrated in his family's traditional heartland of Scotland. They were called Jacobites after the Latin version of James. For decades after the Glorious Revolution, the British government was plagued by Jacobite plots and uprisings. The most serious challenge came in 1745, when King James II's grandson, popularly known as Bonnie Prince Charlie, smuggled himself into Scotland and raised an army to march on London. He had picked the right time to strike. France was willing to back a rebellion with money and with arms, and much of the British army was far away on the European mainland, fighting in another one of King Frederick the Great's wars. 
For a time, it looked like the prince really had a chance at returning his family to power, but eventually his non-professional, feudal-style army was worn down by government forces trained and equipped by modern methods. Bonnie Prince Charlie's rebellion was romanticized in later periods, but the Jacobite movement declined quickly after his defeat. The government's victory and subsequent crackdown on the Jacobites and their sympathizers proved it had become powerful and effective enough to handle even serious internal threats. So that would be the system of government throughout the Napoleonic Wars. A monarchy, but one in which the parliament had a great deal of power, and a degree of civil rights were granted to the population. But we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves here. This was definitely not a democracy. Members of parliament certainly didn't think of themselves as representing the people, And if you look at how they were elected, it's clear why. Voting requirements varied from place to place, but generally political participation was restricted to property holders. Probably somewhere between 5 and 10% of the population could vote. Worse, seats were apportioned according to tradition, not population. There were constituencies called rotten boroughs, with only a tiny handful of voters, sometimes under a dozen, and there were booming cities of thousands with no representation of their own. Members of Parliament were not paid, which meant only men of independent means could afford to serve. Elections and parliamentary politics ran on corruption. Bribery wasn't just commonplace, it was completely endemic, part of the system, the lubrication that kept the machinery of government humming. Seats in the so-called rotten boroughs were sometimes openly auctioned off to the highest bidder. There was no secret ballot. Everyone in the district knew how everyone else voted which often meant the local lord or some other powerful landowner called the shots. Political parties in the modern sense had not really developed yet, so politicians relied on informal networks and personal relationships to get things done. That often meant patronage or bribes. There were no strong laws against what we today would think of as corruption, and this certainly wasn't a political culture that punished that kind of behavior, so graft occurred right out in the open. British politics was a messy, raucous business in the 18th century. With most of the population shut out of the process, the main division was not between right or left, as we might think of it, but between the interests of various factions of a wealthy elite. The merchants, bankers, and businessmen on one side, and the rural landowners and traditional aristocracy on the other. Over time, these loose factions would coalesce into the Whigs and Tories, respectively, but it's a little anachronistic to think of them as political parties like the ones we know today. For all its faults, the system actually kind of worked. It was a corrupt, elitist basket case by modern standards, but the British government of the 18th century was perhaps the most effective and democratic in the world. Almost everywhere else in Europe, any opposition to the traditional ruling elite had to stay underground. In Britain, they were allowed to openly compete for power. Obviously, the system was stacked against any serious challenge, but there were a few self-described radicals sitting in Parliament. During the American War of Independence, radical Whigs openly expressed sympathy for the rebels. Their leader, Charles Fox, went so far as to wear a Continental Army uniform on the floor of the House of Commons. It's hard to imagine something like that being tolerated anywhere else. But beginning in the 1790s, Britain became less tolerant of political dissent and radicalism. The country was at war, and the ideological threat from revolutionary France made the British elite nervous. Politics are not the most important part of the story of 18th century Britain. The biggest change during this period came in the economy. 
Despite what you sometimes read, the British economy was not industrialized during the Napoleonic Wars. The Industrial Revolution was still in a preliminary stage when the Battle of Waterloo was fought in 1815. Rudimentary steam engines had been invented, but they were mostly just used as water pumps. Railroads were still in the experimental stage. Most of the tiny number of operational lines in Britain ran only a few miles and used horsepower rather than coal and steam. The only industry that was really mechanized to any degree at this stage was textiles. And even then, most production happened in small workshops or even family homes where the owner had invested in just a single machine. The power loom was the pinnacle of textile manufacturing technology around this time. About 2,500 of them existed in Britain during the Napoleonic Wars. There would be 10 times that many by the 1850s. This was the most modern industry in Britain, but clearly still traditional methods dominated. So when you think of British industry at this time, don't think of vast factories with thousands of workers, rail lines snaking across the landscape, smokestacks churning out smog that blackened whole cities. All of those stereotypical images of the Industrial Revolution, that's the world of the late 19th century. It will still be decades in the future when our story ends. But the building blocks that would make that world possible were starting to fall into place. There were very few factories in the sense we think of them, but new machines and new methods were beginning to appear in workshops, farms, and family businesses. A few large workshops were beginning to resemble the factories of the future. Most British people had never even seen a railroad by 1815, but the government had invested in a good network of roads and canals to bring goods to market efficiently. Related industries were beginning to cluster together in regional and national hubs like Birmingham and Manchester, which cut down on costs and improved efficiency. There was a frenzy of commercial shipbuilding, and these new merchant vessels brought manufactured goods abroad, where they were often cheaper than domestic products. This was new for most of human history, the combination of high transportation costs and traditional artisanal methods meant that most people bought things that were manufactured very close to home. The economic boom brought more money into Britain than ever before, both into government coffers and into private hands. With so much wealth to experiment with, financiers and bureaucrats began developing new ways to manage it and make it grow. The British financial system was beginning to resemble a modern one. By the 18th century, London had become one of the world's great banking centers and had one of the only stock markets in all of Europe. Easy credit meant more investment, providing more fuel for the economy. British financiers and stock traders of this period were beginning to pioneer a lot of the practices still used in that sector today. The merchant class was on the rise everywhere in the Western world, but in most places they remained shut out of the political system. This was not the case in Britain, and as a result, the British government, and even the aristocracy, began to take on some of the same commercial ethos that was growing in the private sector. Many within the British elite began to view businessmen and bankers as the class of people the government should be protecting and promoting rather than agricultural landowners. The government followed business in becoming more financially sophisticated. There was a central bank and more sophisticated types of bonds. As a result, the government was able to spend more money more effectively. To countries with more primitive financial systems, it seemed the British government had an endless fountain of money. This is how the British were able to do things like subsidize Prussia during Frederick the Great's wars while simultaneously funding their own war effort, or building up the Royal Navy into a force several times the size of its rivals. 
the government raised more money and was able to stretch every pound further. The British were beginning to grasp the fundamental calculus of the industrial era, that real power did not flow from guns, land, and noble titles, but from credit and commerce. As they always do, these major economic and political changes transformed all of society. New farming techniques led to an agricultural boom, and as the rural population grew and the need for farm labor decreased, people streamed into cities looking for work, and they often found it. Industry was prospering, and cheap labor was more fuel for the manufacturing boom. Life was hard for the urban poor. These growing cities were loud, crowded, unsanitary, dangerous places. If you were lucky enough to find a job, chances were good you'd work more than 12 hours a day, six days a week, and still barely make enough money to get by. Workers' rights were nearly non-existent, and labor unions were illegal. Under such conditions, in the city of London, for example, more people died than were born. But even with a negative birth rate, the population of the city nearly doubled between 1700 and 1800. More than enough people were coming into the city from the countryside to compensate. And it wasn't all drudgery and death. Many common people did do well for themselves, or at least escaped a harder and less exciting life of rural poverty. City life could be brutal and dangerous for the average person, but it was also exciting and enriching. There were all sorts of entertainments and luxuries. Plays, pubs, dances, street performers, races, and boxing matches. For the high-minded, there were educational opportunities in schools and libraries, newspapers and magazines to read, and lively coffee houses in which to discuss them. And there were new religious movements that catered to the spiritual needs of average people. On the sleazier side, there were also gin shops, bookies, brothels, and a thriving black market in underground pamphlets full of pornography or profane, seditious satire. This sure wasn't idyllic life in the green and pleasant fields of merry old England. It was loud, crude, fast-paced, and endlessly entertaining. Life in the booming cities ended tragically for many, but you could have some good times along the way, and faced with poverty and boredom in the country, Many people took their chances. The great French Enlightenment writer Voltaire spent some time in England during the 1720s. Despite being an arch-cynic raised in the traditional French sense of cultural superiority over Britain, he was very impressed by what he saw. He came to like England and like the English. Voltaire believed what set Britain apart was the strong influence of the merchant classes, which made society as a whole more closely in line with their values and their interests. And I think he probably had a point. Britain had a much more pluralistic and open society than the one Voltaire had left behind in France. Religious minorities were allowed to practice with relative freedom. A degree of free expression was tolerated, which allowed a lively journalism and literary scene to develop. The British elite seemed more open to new ideas. Both the government and wealthy private individuals patronized the arts and sciences, and they were much more enthusiastic about and less threatened by the Enlightenment. King George III himself was a major financial contributor to one of the greatest projects of the British Enlightenment, Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, to which everyone involved in the study of history today owes a debt. But this wasn't some egalitarian utopia. An aristocratic title still carried a lot of weight in government, in culture, and in everyday life. Society was becoming more commercially oriented and thus more meritocratic, but anyone without money or the ability and luck to distinguish themselves were still on the outside and enjoyed in the fruits of Britain's prosperity only indirectly.
Still, the country had moved further away from the old, rigid feudal system than almost any other society in Europe. There's an anecdote about Britain Voltaire wrote about, and I think it sums all of this up pretty well. During his stay in England, Voltaire learned that the Earl of Oxford, who was a very senior nobleman and major politician, had a younger brother who lived in the Ottoman Empire, where he worked in the import-export business. This totally blew Voltaire away. Most Frenchmen descended from that high level of nobility would consider it way too far beneath them to go live in some foreign country and participate in grubby business deals. Voltaire felt it showed how commerce was valued and respected in Britain in a way that it was not elsewhere in Europe. Voltaire wrote that the British believed, correctly in his eyes, that a man contributed more to society by working as a merchant than by living the traditional life of an aristocrat. Whether you agree with him on that or not, I think it's important to understand that worldview was something that set Britain apart. Britain had never looked stronger in economics or politics, but 18th century British diplomacy was a different story. By the middle of the century, Prussia was Britain's only major European ally. They fought together through the wars of Frederick the Great, but there was constant friction. The Prussians felt the British were holding back not committing enough troops to fight on the European mainland, and being stingy with their promised financial support. The British resented having to spend so much money subsidizing Frederick's ambitions. The Allies finally fell out once and for all over the peace treaty negotiations at the end of the Seven Years' War in 1762. Britain was alone. France felt humiliated by the terms of the peace, and British diplomatic isolation represented an opportunity for revenge. When rebel forces in America began winning victories against the British army, the French pounced. France, Spain, and later the Netherlands declared war on Britain in support of the rebel United States of America. Many other European powers joined in indirectly, giving financial and diplomatic support to the rebels. The Royal Navy was the biggest and best in the world, but against the combined forces of France, Spain, the Netherlands, and the new United States— It was incapable of simultaneously defending Britain from invasion, controlling the supply routes across the Atlantic, and supporting the army's operations in America. Continuing the war was impossible, and Britain was forced to sue for peace and recognize the United States. The defeat stunned the British public. There was prosperity and stability at home, and the victory in the Seven Years' War was still fresh in people's minds. There had been a feeling of invincibility, and it was suddenly shattered by a humiliating defeat. The military had actually performed relatively well, but in a sense, the war had been lost by bad diplomacy and political missteps before it even started. You might compare it to the American defeat in Vietnam. The government and the military had made mistakes, to be sure, but the reason for defeat was that the whole war was a bad idea from the beginning. This was hard for people to wrap their heads around. They'd entered the war sure of victory, the enemy looked so much weaker, and the reasons for defeat were vague. It was a blow to national confidence. As always happens in the wake of such a defeat, the British government and military engaged in some self-reflection. Both improved in the long term, but it was a serious stumble. This was a bad time for British foreign policy, but it could have been worse. The loss of America stung, but the rest of the colonial empire remained intact and had actually expanded. Most importantly, they had stopped France from gaining control over any ports in the Low Countries. Before the invention of steam-powered ships, modern-day Belgium and the Netherlands were the best starting point for a theoretical invasion of Britain from Europe. 
preventing France or any other hostile power from controlling this area was paramount to British security. The growth of British power wasn't just about peaceful commerce and tolerance. There was a dark side. For entire nations of people, Britain's rise mostly brought suffering, tyranny, and death. British merchants dominated the African slave trade and operated many of the biggest markets for slaves, the plantation colonies in the Caribbean. This was a system of almost unimaginable cruelty. For many slaves in the New World, particularly in the Caribbean, life was comparable to that of inmates in a Nazi concentration camp. Over the course of the 18th century, slavery actually became more brutal and routinized, and the racial caste system that dehumanized black people and denied them the material and social benefits of the wider society grew stricter and more entrenched. Nothing about the British Empire seems tolerant or progressive from this point of view. We must not forget that although British prosperity was built in part on the ingenuity of businessmen and inventors, it was also built on the backs of their victims. This is also the period in which the British became the main power in India. Most of their control was indirect and informal at this point. Britain exercised power through the East India Company, a private corporation, and through Indian rulers who were technically just allies of the British, but in practice were subordinate to British ambassadors and advisors. The French and the Dutch had smaller footholds in the region as well, and there were still a few strong, independent Indian states who struggled hard to maintain their sovereignty. But through commerce, diplomacy, and conquest, British influence was creeping in all over the subcontinent. By now, some of you are probably wondering why I haven't really discussed Ireland yet. That's because, although Ireland was legally a part of Britain, I think it belongs in this part of the conversation, discussing Britain's colonies and the dark side of empire. That's the best way to think of Ireland at this time, Britain's oldest imperial conquest, a colonial possession right on the edge of Western Europe. 18th century Ireland had a caste system based on religious and national origin. The Anglo-Irish were a tiny ruling elite, mostly descended from British nobility. They were probably less than 5% of the population, but they dominated life on the island. Only the Anglo-Irish enjoyed the same type of civil rights and political freedom most people in the rest of Britain enjoyed. Another 10-15% to 15% of the population belonged to different Protestant groups who enjoyed limited rights, but the vast majority of people in Ireland were of native Irish descent, Catholic, and spoke the Irish language. They were treated as a conquered people, distrusted and often despised by their rulers. Very few native Irish owned property, which was actually an explicit goal of British policy in Ireland. Most scraped by as tenant farmers. Each social group in Ireland was legally separate from one another, subject to different laws and granted different rights and privileges, almost like an 18th century apartheid. Ireland's history of seemingly tireless resistance to British rule has been romanticized over the years, and not without good reason. But the 18th century was actually a relatively quiet period in Irish history compared to what came before or what would come after. The 17th century had seen several bloody wars and rebellions over control of the island. In fact, the miserable condition of the native Irish Catholics of the 18th century was in part a result of these conflicts. The British administration wanted to keep land, wealth, or any other resource that could potentially be used to fund a rebellion out of Irish hands. And they were pretty successful, 
most of the native Irish elite fled abroad or had their property seized and were reduced to poverty. Native Irish power was broken. Most were focused on personal survival, not national liberation. As we'll see later in the story, when the struggle against British domination resumed at the end of the 18th century, most of the early sparks of resistance actually came from Protestants. After all, they were the only people who really had the means. I'll close out this episode by talking a little bit about the British military. The British army was small compared to the other European powers. Great Britain and Ireland are islands, so there was no need for a large force to cover a land border, and the history of tension between the monarchy and parliament made many in Britain skeptical of large standing armies. The British army may have been undersized, but it punched above its weight. These were some of the best trained, best equipped troops in the world. Leadership was good, too. Unlike most European countries, the upper ranks of the army were open to commoners as well as aristocrats. This wasn't a meritocracy. Ranks actually had monetary values and were bought and sold like pieces of property, but the system did have some meritocratic elements and was open to a bigger pool of people. As most of you probably know, the Royal Navy was the pride of the British Armed Forces during this era. It was the biggest navy in Europe with the most modern ships and equipment. Britain had a long, deeply ingrained maritime tradition, and huge merchant and fishing fleets. This meant that there was a big pool of educated, talented officers and experienced sailors to draw from. This was an incredibly important factor in the performance of an 18th century navy. The skills and knowledge required to operate a sailing vessel could only be acquired through years of experience. Sailing was a way of life. You couldn't just take someone who had never been to sea, put them on a warship, and expect them to perform the duties of a sailor well. Experienced sailors were a precious, exhaustible resource, and Britain had far more of them than any other country. It's hard to overstate the power and skill of the Royal Navy, but we shouldn't think of it as invincible. Certainly no one at the time did, including the British. The legendary reputation of the Royal Navy was largely created during this period. It didn't already exist. When revolutionary France declared war on Britain in 1793, everyone's last memory of the British Navy in action was the American Revolution, in which they had experienced some defeats. No one underestimated the Royal Navy, but there was no reason to believe it couldn't be beaten. So that was Britain. As I hope I've showed you, by the time of the Napoleonic Wars, the elements that would lead to British dominance of the 19th century were already starting to develop. They were on the cusp of great things. But I don't want to give you the impression it was inevitable. Britain was strong and poised to get even stronger, but they could have been beaten and very nearly were. No one can see the future. The British themselves had largely stumbled upon their successful economic and political system by chance and they were only just beginning to understand its capabilities. That's all for now. There will be no new episode next week, as I'll be busy with final exams, but I'll be back in two weeks' time with the most important episode yet, France. Finally, thank you to everyone who's made a suggestion for the bonus show. We've gotten some good ones. You've still got a couple more weeks if you want to join in, just chip into the fundraiser at patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon and you'll receive a submission form. Well, that's it. Thanks for joining me. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, 
a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. <laughs>